Hi everyone, my name is Katrina Van Huss. I'm the CEO of Turnkey and I'm here today to help you hear a great story about how a community created for revenue turned into something much more valuable. A community that lives over time and will contribute to both revenue and mission and sustainability. With me today, I have Ian Joyce, Chief Marketing and Mission Experience Officer, and Emily Clark, Director of Digital Engagement and Fundraising, and also Otis Fulton, PhD, Social Psychologist, who is Turnkey's VP of Psychological Strategy. So we've invited Otis today to help explain how this transition happened and what the humans involved were going through as they made this transition from we're raising money to we're helping each other. Um, Emily, I'm going to ask you to start, and if you could talk about um, how this whole thing started and when it started. Back in 2020, um, right before the whole world changed for us, um, uh, we had the sense that we were going to need to pivot um, some of our fundraising programs um, because of COVID, just like every other nonprofit. Um, and so at that point, we, ha we had a WALK program that I managed, and we um, went through the process of, of defining what that WALK program would be um, uh, in the digital space. Simultaneous to that, um, we started working with Turnkey, and we were introduced to this concept that was taking off in the UK, these digital challenges. Um, and so we thought that would be a great way to diversify our revenue stream in a year we knew we're, we were going to see some major drops. Um, and so I think we were the second nonprofit to take um, part in that program um, through um, Turnkey's partnership with the UK company we were working with. Um, when we started that group, what we saw was um, a great way to acquire new supporters for PBTF. Um, but what we didn't anticipate was um, families that um, are part of our organization would organically also be served these ads and find mm -hmm. the group. Um, and what drove a lot of the success in that group was really seeing um, uh, how our families were um, advocating for, uh, for, for PBTF's mission, sharing impact of programs that they've been affected by um, in a positive way, and really sharing their stories. And when those people chimed in and, and um, really connected with um, folks that maybe didn't have any relationship with um, a PBTF or our mission, um, we really saw some increase in, in fundraising. Um, we applied some of the same principles to, in terms of ad acquisition, to our Starry Night Walk program. And what we found with that was that um, our metrics were performing higher than what maybe national numbers were seeing in that um, 2020 year. And so we thought, okay, this is a great model for us to um, kind of bridge the two between an acquisition campaign and our Starry Night program, which is highly invested in um, mission impact and creating a, a meaningful experience for participants in that space. And so um, when it um, came time to launch last year's event, what we did was we combined um, those two um, those, those two concepts and we made a um, Starry Night Walk group that was a national digital campaign targeting really specific markets where um, uh, families needed support and they, we were, just weren't there and we weren't present. Um, at that point, we decided um, that this was going to be an opportunity for families to kind of create meaningful relationships, empower one another, support one another. And mm -hmm. so um, in the past, we've turned off groups at the end of challenges. We made the um, uh, intentional decision to keep this group open so that these families can continue to um, uh, really build their community for themselves. Love it. So you um, originally, it was a uh, revenue yeah. device. How, how did yes. it 
So um, when we first piloted, um, so there's really, we ran it that first year as two different programs. We had that starry night walk program. And then we also had a walk, a walk model that was separate from that. Um, that first year, um, we, or that first event, um, we invested around $3,000 in ads and we generated um, around $40,000 in revenue. Um, and for us, running an ad campaign the first time that was based on acquisition, that was, um, uh, to us, we felt it was a success. And what we really noted inside of the group is that the things that made that a su success were the families that were organically joining um, separate from Starry Night, that were helping to build that community. So we had families inside that group that were advocating for our mission, sharing mission impact, how they were personally affected, to primarily a group of individuals that had never experienced PBTF as a whole. Um, simultaneously, we took that kind of ad acquisition strategy and applied it to the walk campaign. And we ended up um, performing higher than some of our um, um, some of the other walk programs in the country because we took those same strategies and applied it to the Starry Night model. So we thought, okay, this is we're on to something here in terms of mm -hmm. um, uh, th what that Starry Night model looks like, which was deeply engaging experience with mission mm -hmm. um, and honoring our families in their journeys. Um, and so we took that concept and paired it with. Um, the acquisition um, ad model, and we really came came up with what we ended up doing last year, um, which really helped us grow um, and activate in communities that um, it was much needed. So you're activating virtually in multiple yes. communities around the U.S. And exactly. So they, there is a geographic tie, but it's happening virtually, and then exactly. you're seeing some of that jump off into the real world. One hundred percent. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Otis, I'm going to go to you, and then Anne to you. Otis. Um, why did families react this way? You know, it was an acquisition tool for fundraising and yet something else happened. What was going on? Yeah, you know, um, let's just let's just talk talk about what a community is. You know, a community can be any kind of a group of people that have a common interest or a common belief and so forth. And, um, you know, we engage with communities to reinforce certain aspects of our identities. And, you know, here you've got a, a group of people who, uh, you know, their, their common interest was, um, you know, shepherding someone who had a pediatric brain tumor into a successful outcome. And so, you know, you had all of these folks engaging with each other now, and um, some of them were experts in doing this. Some of them were novices in doing this. So there was all kinds of opportunities for them to have, you know, kind of very enriching, uh, rewarding engagements with each other uh, based on where they were kind of on the on the scale of, of expert and and folks who needed knowledge and, and uh, so forth. So Otis, I'm curious, when families joined um, this effort virtually, did they, was it a big deal for them to transition from I'm interacting with people who share my experience to now I'm donating and fundraising? Was that big or small? Well, you know, I, I, I think that, that the engagement will, will predict that kind of uh, uh, that kind of behavior. If people are getting value out of this kind of a, an engagement, this kind of an organization, you know, they will support it financially. And, you, you know, you, you, you see that effect in the consumer world as well as in the, uh, uh, as in the nonprofit world. One of the ways I've heard you describe it before is that people, once they're engaged in the community like that, um, they don't see it as donating. They see it as moving money from one of their accounts to another of their accounts because they're so deeply embedded in the idea of this community and the mission. Folks that that, that really have have a strong belief that this is part of who I am. Um, yeah, they, they don't see it as giving the money away. They see it as kind of giving it to themselves. 
yeah. um, which, which, which is, you know, where, of course, you want folks to be because it, it says that you're, they're getting great value from the engagement with you. And, you know, and they want that engagement to continue and grow. I want to move to Ian now. Ian, um, can you briefly describe your background, including your for-profit experience? I've been in marketing in a number of roles. Uh, I was uh, uh, the owner of a consultancy I, uh, that worked with a lot of uh, large global companies. Um, I've worked on uh, the client side as a corporate marketer um, and have worked across a lot of uh, industries. At the same time, um, for about the past 30 years, I've been deeply engaged with nonprofits. During the time that I had my company, uh, I had nonprofits that were also clients of mine. Uh, so I come to this with, uh, with sort of a dual perspective of having lived in the nonprofit world in a variety of roles and having been uh, a marketer. So you said something to me um, when we had a conversation earlier that there was something missing when you got to PBTF and it was a pipeline. Talk to me about that. This is an issue not just with PBTF, but with a lot of organizations that I've uh, interacted with. Uh, they tend to think about fundraising very programmatically. So we have a number of programs for fundraising, uh, digital and uh, events in real life, like our Ride for Kids or Versus Cancer. Um, and often, you know, budgets are, are huge drivers of behavior. And so program managers tend to look at things very much in terms of the revenue that, that they're driving. Um, and pipeline can get lost in that. And so uh, that's something that I've seen through my work with other nonprofits, that um, organizations that are intentional about using events, using um, a variety of initiatives uh, to create a pipeline, uh, tend to see revenue show up often in really surprising ways. So is your community a pipeline? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. How do you see, uh, I, I often hear people um, talk about how to move people from a community like what you have into other areas of the nonprofit. And one of the, um, one of the things that, that we believe is that people will opt into other ways to engage when they're ready to opt in. Um, Ian, what's your experience on that front? Yeah, I've, uh, my experience is identical to that. I think that um, you know, one of it's. I think it's really incumbent on nonprofits to give um, to give individuals not think of people as donors or as advocates or as um, uh, families in crisis or however they engage with their constituents, but to think about all facets of the person. Um, the people that we interact with um, have a number of concerns and interests. Um, and it's dangerous, I think, to predict what those are. I mean, we have a sense of what they are, uh, but I think you can foreclose a lot of possibilities that you, you simply don't wanna do. And so, uh, you know, I think that our job, uh, you know, if we're being smart about this with our pipeline, is to expose uh, the individuals in that pipeline to all the possibilities that are attached to our mission. So, and, and those come with various demands on the person. So, you know, becoming an advocate, for example, a grassroots advocate is, um, is often not asking a lot of someone, you know, essentially we're saying, hey, share our story. 
um, or you know, contact your legislator about a piece of uh, legislation <laughs> that we have interest in. Uh, other kinds of activities um, might come with uh, a little more of a demand on the person, but by exposing them to this, uh, we give them the opportunity to opt in, uh, to understand uh, what resonates with them. Uh, so it becomes less about us talking about the need and more about them kind of looking around and saying, aha, you know, here's something where I really have the ability to make a difference and I want to get involved. Love it. And you uh, bring to mind um, some of the work and and what we teach is around satisfaction. And it seems to me, Otis, that Ian just hit on something that's um, important in regard to satisfaction. Can you detail like, you know, the trifecta of satisfaction and how it intersects with what Ian just said? What Christine is referring to is uh, psychologists have found that people who are satisfied with various aspects of their lives, uh, they, they they have three things in common. They, they they report that they have a sense of autonomy, that they're, you know, self-directed. Uh, they have a, a, a what psychologists call relatedness. They're connected to something bigger than themselves, which is the community that you guys have been describing. And then they have um, uh, what is called competence. And what what that refers to is they... They feel like they're doing important things with their lives and they have the ability to do it well. So, you know, you, what you guys have done is set up uh, a, a situation where people can, you know, feel fulfilled through those th three aspects. And, and again, uh, that's very rewarding to people and people come back to that again and again. Um, uh, one of the pillars of what Otis just described is competence and, or recognition. And then the way, way back, Turnkey was a recognition company. That was one of the things we did. I think that's how you and I met, actually, Emily, um, in the way back. Um, so tell me, in the context of this community group, how do you deliver recognition? So I can touch on that a little bit. Um, within the group, um, we, we do it in a variety of ways. One is that we really wanna share and highlight what people are doing to empower their own communities. And so we really, um, strive to create a personal, uh, a personally recognized opportunity where people are um, being highlighted and we're sharing stories and people are empowered to also share their own um, journeys inside of the group. So um, what we're seeing is people are activating in their communities um, and going to that social online group and they're saying, look what we've done, look what we've been able to accomplish. And then we, what we do then try to do is take that and share that with our, our the, the, the other sort of entities within our community as well. And so it's less about items and gifts and incentivizing um, which has served its place in some of these groups in terms of getting contact information, but that's not the kind of recognition we're looking to do here. What we're looking to do is show real meaningful impact um, that is being generated and, and pushed forward by our community, not by PBTF. Yeah, and, and if I can just tag, yeah, if I can just tag onto that, I think uh, one of the way, ways that that shows up is in how we talk about uh, ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's not about what we do, it's about the community and our constituents and what they're doing, what they want, uh, what they value. Um, and you know what we try to communicate is that that's what guides us. Um, and we simply you know take what we, we learn from that community and synthesize it into something that, uh, that represents um, uh, a way of fulfilling a particular need that they have. So we try to never say PBTF does this. Um, it's more about what our community is asking us to do. Otis, 
Oh, well, I have so many things I want to ask about. Um, <laughs> number one, I want to applaud you guys because what you've done is um, you've not clung to that old model and tried to get back, get back, get back. Instead, you recognize the new opportunity that the virtual environment offered and you used what you knew to exploit it fully and in the best way possible. Um, Otis, what Ian just touched on where, when he said, we don't talk about what PBTF does. Can you talk about, um, you know, youth-centric communications? And I think that's basically what I'm hearing and what that means. You, you want to talk about the supporters goals mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, what happens then is the organization kind of takes the back seat. It, it, it's kind of a counterintuitive kind of a way to talk about the organization and to talk to supporters. It's really empowering the individuals, and, and that's what fuels the engagement. When people feel like they are uh, really are able to take action and make something important happen in the world through the organization, and they're not just kind of uh, supporting something that's going on outside of themselves. Ian, thoughts? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very much aligned with our way of thinking. Um, I think that uh, uh, you know one of the uh, one of the things I recognized um, when I showed up at PBTF a little little less than a year and a half ago was uh, that when I would ask people in the organization to talk about it, I would hear all the wonderful things that we did. Um, and I would hear a laundry list of these things, and 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 it certainly validated that we were do doing wonderful work. But what I didn't hear was some sort of cohesive narrative around um, the people that we were serving. And I think that's what we've shifted to. And it's um, you know, and that's not just my influence. It's really the organization uh, embracing this idea that. Um, First of all, we have to acknowledge that um, that the individuals that we we serve and we work with and we ask for support from have um, have their own needs. Uh, we're deeply interested in what those are, uh, and then we have to figure out a way to put that into language that um, that they might have said instead of the sort of internal speak that we use sometimes to talk about you know the workings of our organization. So I don't think we're entirely there. I don't know that any organization uh, is, but um, I think that that you know it's this sort of dissatisfaction with the way things have been and uh, and sometimes are that uh, that drives us. And um, uh, you know I'm always fascinated when I talk to someone, um, you know, a, a donor or a constituent or, or a family that we've worked with. Um, and I start to hear thing, hear language from them that sounds like something that we've adopted. So it means that you know we're learning, we're you know we're iterating, uh, and we're moving in a positive direction. I love it. I love it. Um, Ian, uh, can you talk about uh, the the metrics of the group? Like, what metrics do you track? Um, how does it? Uh, you know, how do you dashboard your success beyond? Uh, you know, are, are you keeping track of who's coming in through this community and and how they end up? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at that in a uh, in a number of ways. And I would say, uh, you know, to put it in marketing speak, the key key metrics are probably conversion. You know, if we're looking mm -hmm. at the pipeline, um, how many and who are we uh, moving into roles in advocacy? Um, you know, how many are we are are we seeing donate to the organization, or 
uh, start a fundraiser, uh, or take some other meaningful action. Um, and I think that, you know, because we're dealing with a rare disease, I would say we're not, uh, we're not working on the scale of some organizations yet. Uh, and sometimes our goals can be a little more uh, qualitative. Uh, so we do, for example, a lot of uh, state level advocacy where we're trying to influence policy within the individual states. And um, because of the nature of that work, we don't really need 100,000 people to, you know, who are poised to call their, uh, their congressperson. Uh, what we need are key volunteers who can come to the table, tell stories, uh, engage with policymakers. And so often it's, you know, looking within these communities that we've created and, you know, identifying uh, the individuals who are, are well positioned for that work and who are eager to do that work. So it's sort of a mix of the, the quantitative and qualitative um, right. uh, uh, metrics. I think it's interesting too, you get to see how they behave and do they play well with others inside the group before you reach out and, and invite them into this new opportunity. Um, yeah. That takes me to uh, the staff support, staff modeling. Emily, you recently had a title change and I think that's reflective of the change in method. Can you describe where you came from in terms of staff support, where you are now and maybe where you see the future going? Absolutely. So um, when all of this sort of started for us, I I had that traditional walk title or walk um, director title. And um, when um, we, we saw a real um, need and um, growth opportunity in this digital space, um, our CEO um, at that point um, had the foresight to, 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 to change my title to director of digital fundraising and engagement, knowing that we were going to be living in this space. Um, it wasn't just a pivot point because of COVID. It was, um, this is where the, the future of fundraising really was going to be. Yeah. Well, when we shifted our philosophical um, sort of belief that you have to engage meaningly, meaningfully first, um, that's when um, we changed my title to director of digital engagement. We're leading with engagement. We're leading with Im impact. We're leading with opportunities to really bring our community in to make active change um, in the ways that they want to. And so because of that, it shifted sort of my way of working, which has been fantastic. Um, we're, we're really more focused on relationship building and then those financial metrics are, are falling in line. Love it. Um, can I imagine you are in the tech all day. Can you detail your tech stack? Yes. So um, we use um, Classy for our peer-to-peer -peer and community fundraising support. Um, we're also in Virtuous um, for our donor management um, to support some of these digital campaigns. Um, we're also in GivePanel. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we use MailChimp for some email communications to those acquisition folks as well. Right. Um, and then we um, just um, launched Tatango um, for our texting app. So we're really excited to see how we can start to integrate um, our partnership with them as well. Very nice. Um, Otis, I want to go to you. Uh, the tech stack brings to mind like there are so many different ways to engage. What is it that makes an individual in the community say yes to the opportunity that might be positioned to the community at large, like uh, act on a legislative priority? What makes them say yes? What is it, what is it that, that, Ian and Emily and PBTF have accomplished to get someone to say yes to new opportunities to engage. Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's uh, as we talked about earlier, it's offering people an opportunity to demonstrate competence 
uh, that, you know, they're, they're good at something, uh, they, they, they can make, make a difference and they're doing they, that they feel that they're doing important work. And I, I think that, you know, it's very important, uh, Ian and Emily, uh, they, they, they take the attitude that, you know, we want to push this out to folks. Um, that doesn't always happen. And, um, you know, I, I, I think you have to start with, with, with this attitude that, that, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to pull people in, we're trying to give them opportunities to take more responsibility, uh, rather than trying to do it all themselves. And, and that's how you grow the community, of course. So Emily, I know that, um, but the community is not an if you build it, they will come endeavor. Somebody's in there all the time moderating. Yeah. Can you talk about how you manage that? Absolutely. So in the beginning, we um, because we were so heavily focused on like that transactional experience before we knew what we knew, um, it was a lot of fundraisers inside that group. So um, whether it was a volunteer fundraiser or staff um, folks that worked specifically with fundraising, what we learned though is that what makes that big impact is that um, that voice that can really provide support, um, resourcing, and insight into the programs that we offer, um, and what's what um, this fundraising um, and this commitment from our community is driving, um, and so. So what we've done now is we've actually um, placed our family support staff um, inside of the groups because they're so, the success of these groups is so driven by family participation. And we also have families that are um, actively seeking out resourcing, um, support for themselves, but also wanting to provide support, support for others. Um, it was critical that we placed a program staff inside of that group. Um, and they really drove a lot of the, the um, the conversations um, in the beginning, but what we're now seeing is that our family participants are really driving that and they're um, additive and they're there to be that support, but really they've, they've I, I credit that team for creating that network of really trust inside of that group so that, that um, participants are able to um, engage in really meaningful ways. That's so interesting. You know, I've been doing this for almost 34 years now and I remember, distinctly remember times uh, where I've been in rooms with people with positions like yours, and the discussion was, how do we keep the volunteers from talking to each other? Because once they talk to each other, you know, they get the bit in their teeth and they're just running and we can't control yeah. them anymore. And I, you know, what I'm hearing you guys say is like, let the horse run. Let yeah. It run. yeah. Well, it, some of this is, is reflected, you know, you were talking about uh, uh, sort of our organizational structure and how Emily's title changed and you know Emily is part of what we call our mission experience team and that's not just digital fundraising mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's advocacy it's family support um, it's our brand and marketing team and so when we look at these initiatives like you know how do we build community digitally uh, we're not work we're not having to go to um, another department or another uh, corner of the organization. Uh, we're all there. They're already having discussions mm -hmm. about how this is going to happen. Um, and so everybody is is primed to come to the table and contribute um, meaningfully to uh, to making mm -hmm. this happen. Mm -hmm. do, you do you have um, a story, Ian or Emily, um, about a family or a person that's come out of this group that you could share with us? One of the critical pieces that has helped us um, meet families that I'm about to share with you um, is the, we left groups open. We never closed down the groups. Um, they are um, sustained year round. So that was a critical piece to this and our ability to continue to grow community. But um, with that okay, being so let said- me, Let me interrupt uh, you and ask you, when did you make that decision and why? 
we made it on the, the forefront of the campaign. We knew that we wanted to, um, when we launched this, this Starry Night group that um, um, we launched last year, we knew on the front end that we wanted to keep it open. We wanted to, to this to be a hub for families to connect nationally and be a support um, resource for each other. Um, and so that's, from the get-go, we put that family support staff in there and we, um, we, we had a transition point where the, the fundraising campaign was over, um, where they then took over the group fully and have maintained it since. Love it. Yeah, okay, and, go ahead and, with your story. Go ahead, Ian. Well, I was going to say, yeah, in a sense, we're using fundraising to create pipeline for other things. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I love that. I love that. All right. And Emily, you had a story about someone who came. Yeah. Out. Yeah. So we actually have two really great um, families that we've met because of this group. One, um, they, uh, their child was newly diagnosed with a, um, a terminal um, diagnosis at the time that they saw our ads. Um, so they joined the group um, and they held a lantern lighting ceremony, which is part of the group experience um, in their community um, at the time of diagnosis. Um, their child passed away and they connected with us through the group and said, hey, we're really trying to honor um, our child's experience. Um, um, the school is going to work with us. What, what can we do with the school? Um, and that led into a, a bench dedication and it brought all of our core um, uh, mission experience teammates together to really lean in and support this family. And um, in the fall, they'll be launching a fundraiser to help support um, other families that were in their position. So it became this real full circle moment where mission met um, their ability to impact others. Um, and that was a really fantastic one. And then we had another, another kid, he's a, he's a teenager um, and a golfer who was impacted by a brain tumor diagnosis. Um, and he wanted to take his passion um, for um, golf and translate it into an experience where he can educate his community and raise money. And what started out with a $2,000 goal ended up raising $15,000 within a week. So, wow. um, and he was inspired by another child that was fundraising inside the group and shared their story. So, um, you know, we're seeing all this sort of self-empowerment that's coming from this um, and really where the community is inspiring one another. Um, um, and so that's just, those are metrics that um, are really hard to get in some of those transactional experiences. So the best practice was to shut down a challenge when it's yep. over. You said, yes. no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do that. Keep it mm -hmm. open, and yep. we're going to support our families via this group and also use it for Starry Night. Uh, work, exactly. Basically. That's exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. It's interesting too. Your CEO was born and bred in the on the ground walk mm -hmm. environment, uh, Courtney Davies. And yes. so I, you know, very brave of all of you, I think, to yeah. say, this is what we're doing. Um, yeah. Ian, let me ask you a question. So how important is this uh, method, this effort um, to the future success of Pediatric Brain Tumor Foundation? Yeah, there's no going back. Um, <laughs> You know, we work in a rare disease space, uh, so uh, there are about 5,600 uh, diagnoses of pediatric brain tumors a year. You know, think of that spread across the U.S., and we have a national reach, and so mm -hmm. if we want to, um, you know, meet this goal of being the first point of contact for families that, um, that receive this diagnosis, then uh, there has to be a digital component. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanna be careful to say, we don't see digital in a vacuum. It's not mm -hmm. that Emily is doing something that is disconnected from the rest of the organization. Uh, we're always interested in figuring out how do we weave a digital experience into real life experiences? Mm -hmm. um, how do we use it to build a runway to um, in-person events? 
Um, so, you know, we're, we think of ourselves as an incubator. Mm -hmm. uh, we like to come up with ideas, we pressure test them internally, uh, and then we want to put them out into the world and see if they work uh, or not. And so digital is, um, you know, there's this buzz phrase, digital transformation. Um, that's what we're going through. It's going to be a part of our DNA. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the, the future is going to be a lot brighter because of that. I love it. So we still have on the ground walks, but they are fed and supported by this group. And there are some people I imagine who only interact in the group. Is that right? So we actually pivot away from uh, on the ground walks in the format that we knew it in the past. Okay. Um, now we're really driving towards community um, uh, events okay. uh, that will bring the community together, not necessarily walk events, but still live community events. Yes. Got it. And are they spontaneously created by the group members or do you guys provide some support in that and some structure? So we have a mix of both. Um, okay. uh, many, many, many of our past walk teams have really taken to this model um, and have um, driven a lot of their own fundraising efforts through this. Um, yep. One of our top Starry Night walk teams actually just raised $50,000 in a pickleball tournament um, wow. under this new model. So um, we're seeing some really great, strong kind of self-run um, events mm -hmm. uh, that are happening. Um, and then there'll be some that are driven in the future um, by PBTF as well. Yeah. You know, we've always had the... Um idea that the word walk meant nothing, meaning like literally yeah. to walk equal to no activity. And I think that uh, this sort of bears that out. Like we use the word walk because we needed a word, a filler, like we're going to do a thing. We'll call it a walk, but you walk all the time. Right. So I, I almost think that this is, you've just taken, you've just acknowledged that like yeah. it's whatever you want to do. Exactly. Yeah, I think we've, you know, traditionally there's been this desire to, um, you know, on the part of program managers, not just in PBTF, but everywhere to say, you know, I've got to make uh, my budget of X uh, through this walk. So mm -hmm. people are going to walk regardless of what, <laughs> what, the, what yeah. it is they want to do. And the activity is just the, uh, the thing that's on the horizon that mm -hmm. people are working towards. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fundraising, the recruitment, all of this that happens in advance, mm -hmm. that's the important piece. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if somebody gets to the point of uh, a walk day and that's not what matters to them and they'd rather play pickleball, mm -hmm. well, more power to them. Yeah. Um, you know, as long as they're engaged in mission in some form, you know, that's how we're, we're measuring success. Mm -hmm. I love it. All right, I want to wrap this talk up with happiness. Otis, um, I'm a I'm a parent. My child's just been diagnosed with uh, a brain tumor. What does this group mean to me? What does this group do for me? It gives me the opportunity to engage with other people that are like myself. And, um, you know, Emily said a very important word, uh, which is trust. And, uh, you know, these are people that can enter into trusting relationships with others because they know that they're going through a similar uh, experience with them. And those create very, very strong bonds between individuals. So, um, you know, this trust factor can't be underestimated. And with that, we will wrap. Emily, Ian, Otis, thank you all for joining me. I hope that you will be leading the way for the rest of the nation to embrace um, the way that you're looking at this thing, because I think you're bringing a lot of happiness to people, a lot of satisfaction and a lot of comfort. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you Thank so much you. for having us. All right.
change starts with just one person, you. If today's episode got your gears turning, don't forget to share it with your network. And hey, why not drop us a review? Your review helps more people find us and spread the good. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, this is Katrina signing off from Seeding Social Good Podcast by Turnkey. Stay inspired, keep making waves, and let's create a better world together.